Hi, I'm Adrian Lee, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. When governments around the world told people to lock down because of COVID-19, we were scared and confused and washing our groceries in our homes. Meanwhile, a few scientists actually saw a tiny silver lining. This was a chance to study the natural world without all the cacophony of modern human society. Scientists called it the anthropause, a period of a few months when all the noise that humans make went silent. And if the COVID-19 pandemic is, as we hope, a once-in-a-lifetime crisis, this big quiet was a -a once-in-a-lifetime chance for researchers to just listen. In today's episode, we're literally cutting through the noise. We'll be talking to three experts about their research into what they learned, about the birds in the sky, the sounds of the sea, and the shifting ground beneath us. You're listening to The Decibel. I could fly, actually, (laughs) and so I can't fly, so I enjoy um, living vicariously through birds. That's Dr. Nicola Cooper from the University of Manitoba. And so as a conservation biologist, I really want to protect this group of species that I get so much joy from. A lot of her research was already looking at the effect of human-made noise on birds. And so when we all started staying home and reduced how much we were driving or going out at all, she saw a real research opportunity. What actually happened is uh, one of the very earliest days of the pandemic, I needed to go on an errand. So I went outside in my car and within 30 seconds, I was like, I have to do an experiment on this because it was such an unusual environment with having all these roads and, and cities still present, but having much less traffic. I always felt we had a moral obligation to learn as much as we could from the pandemic because it was so terrible and such a disaster for so many people. I just, I really feel obligated ethically to try to learn what we can and to help this experience make the world a better place in the long run. You know, the little role I can play in making the world a better place is to see what it is we can do to help uh, birds and other wildlife that are around us. Okay, so how did you go about conducting your research to test your hypothesis? Normally what I do as a researcher is that if I have a question in my mind, I go out and make observations of birds and come back to the office and look at my observations. Um, But it wasn't possible. All the scientists were locked down at the same time as um, all the traffic had decreased. So we had to find another way to do that. So we turned to... Um, the largest nature database in the world that has been created by volunteer contributors, which is called eBird. And so we used observations of more than 4 million birds to uh, look at how birds change their habitat use uh, during the pandemic in comparison with the three years prior to it. So what exactly were the findings? So we were able to look at 82 of the most common species found across Canada and the U.S. And what really amazed me is that almost all of those species, so 80% of them, did change their habitat use during the pandemic. From the largest species we could look at, which was bald eagle, 
all the way down to the smallest species we could look at, which were ruby-throated hummingbirds, we see these really substantial dramatic changes. So for example, with bald eagles, we could actually see that they moved out of counties that had weaker lockdowns and into the counties that had the strongest lockdowns and therefore the greatest decreases in traffic. Is there a specific sense of what it is about traffic that's so disruptive to birds? I think the evidence is that the two big impacts that result from traffic are, are noise and also vehicle mortality. So collisions between vehicles and birds and other wildlife. And those are sort of really two big factors. And so we can reduce noise in quite a lot of ways. You know, some areas have sound barrier walls. You'll see them all along highways. Those can be used. You can also use quieter surfaces on the roads and you can also use quieter vehicles. Those are all things that will decrease the noise. Um, And, you know, that would really benefit humans as well. There's lots of evidence that uh, humans get very stressed and it's very challenging to our bodies when we're faced with noise from traffic. And if it is noise that's a big issue, what is it about noise that upsets birds? Um, Noise has numerous impacts in in a bunch of different ways on birds in particular because birds are just so chatty, just like people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're really sensitive to noise. So I think that's also a sign that, um, you know, if we see negative impacts on noise on birds, there's a reasonable chance that we're having some negative impacts on stress levels of humans and, and things like that, too. So we should take that as a warning to try and create a healthier environment for humans and for birds. So the bottom line here, and I'm I'm nervous to ask this because I really like birds and I do drive, but... Is the bottom line here that birds hate us? <laughs> um, well, it depends on which bird you're asking, actually. Um, some birds uh, really clearly benefit from human environment. So uh, red-tailed hawks are an example where they actually moved away from roads during the pandemic. And what we think might be going on there is that there was less roadkill and therefore less reasons for the hawks to stay close to the roads during the pandemic. And so that's an example of how some birds do benefit from the supplemental food that we provide them with. So obviously humans won't and haven't lived life in a reduced way like we did during those first lockdowns. So is there a takeaway from the research in terms of how we can better balance the realities of, you know, human activity once we recover from the pandemic and conserve bird populations? I think we learned a lot from the pandemic about how we can work virtually. And the other thing we can do is improve our uh, public transportation systems. And if we did those things, then that would decrease our impact on biodiversity, it would decrease our carbon footprint, and at the same time it would save companies money. And so there's this opportunity for there to be a win-win-win scenario if we decrease traffic in the long run. So I think we should go for it. When the Anthropause made the world quieter, it didn't have that effect on the internet. In fact, for a lot of us, Facebook and Zoom parties were basically our whole social lives. And scientists were there, too. Dr. William Minarek, a geologist and faculty lecturer at McGill University, found his pandemic project on social media, thanks to a post by a seismologist in Belgium named Thomas Lecoq. He noticed that when Belgium entered their lockdown at the start of the COVID uh, pandemic, 
that all of a sudden the signals from the earth were more clear that the the human sound had gone away and so he put out a little request on the on social media asking whether others had seen the same thing and whether there was any science to be had from it and a number of us responded and uh the 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 project really just snowballed from there uh, how did you happen to have the tools that are available i assume that there are sort of specific tools that are required for seismology work so i was i was investing in low-cost instrumentation for field monitoring and so i happened to have one of these geophones and it happened to be at the right time when the software and the instrumentation was inexpensive enough for for many of us to have this inexpensive equipment so folks had hundreds of these devices around the world listening to our you know quieter earth during the global lockdowns of 2020 is that right yeah this uh, uh network was uh, crowdfunded initially through kickstarter it's uh, called the Raspberry Shake. It uses a Raspberry Pi inexpensive computer as its brains. As a result, there are literally hundreds of these stations set up and tied into the network, and you can access the data in real time. And what were researchers able to learn from that data? It's a remote sensing in a sense. We can't visit the interior of the Earth and, and pound on the rocks unless there happens to be a hole there for us. And so our clues as to what's happening in the interior is the rock breaking and, and generating sound that we detect. During this period of time when human noise quieted down, we could now detect earthquakes of much smaller magnitude. And so in a place like Montreal, where, where I live, we have earthquakes, but most of them are not felt. They're magnitude one or magnitude two earthquakes. And those are almost completely obscured by the sounds generated by trains and by trucks and by cars and by human activity. We could now detect low intensity earthquakes that are telling us something about the interior of the Earth in this area and how the stresses are building or being dissipated and perhaps will warn us in the future for a bigger earthquake that could actually cause damage or, or loss of life. In Montreal, historically, there have been magnitude four or five earthquakes, which are big enough to cause building damage and loss of life. These Our buildings are unreinforced masonry structures. I live in a, in a brick building. It's going to fall over if we have a magnitude five earthquake. Was there anything that the research revealed about the man-made noise itself? Yeah. So one unexpected benefit that we, we didn't really figure out until, until we compiled the data and started thinking about it was, yes, the quieting allowed us to detect earth noises, uh, you know, tectonic uh, noises better, but the geophones, this network of geophones actually provided us a window into human activity. So you may remember that during the COVID lockdown, there were published uh, activity monitors. So Google or Apple were compiling location data and releasing how many people are not going to restaurants or how many people are not traveling to work every day, mobility indices based on where your cell phone was. And there's always a concern with that with privacy because that cell phone has your personal data on it. The geophone information is already anonymized. We can't tell the difference between one truck on one side or a truck on, on another side, we just can see the sort of overall hum of lots of trucks or lots of trains or lots of people. And so it's a measure of human activity in the city that is by nature anonymous. So, so, just, so just so I'm clear, that's, that generalized man-made noise can be used as a generalized measurement of human mobility? Yeah, absolutely. And it's being used that way. Let me give an example. For example, the, I, I have one of these geophones in my basement and it showed some quieting, um, but it didn't show as much quieting during the COVID lockdown as other stations in the city. 
And that's because I, I live very close to a, a, a busy thoroughfare. Uh, the buses kept running, the subway kept running, garbage trucks kept running. And so those sorts of noises continued. One thing I did see on my basement geophone was uh, the quieting in the evenings persisted quite a bit longer than the daytime quieting. In other words, uh, we could see the effect of the bars and restaurants and movie theaters being sh shut down because people weren't staying out late at night and not driving to and from those places. So in a way, the pandemic really provided an opportunity to control for a lot of different variables that humans are involved in, right? Absolutely. It was, it was a time unprecedented, really, in, in the instrumented record in which all of a sudden globally, many different cultures, many different tectonic or geologic environments, we had a change in the ambient noise. And that allowed us to both see earth processes we couldn't see before, but also learn something about human behavior. Most of us spent the early part of the pandemic looking for distractions. Fair enough. Some of us made sourdough, others got into puzzles. But scientists are built differently. And some of them found their distraction by saying, hey, this is a great opportunity to do a close study into how much quieter the ocean is with a lot less human activity. You know, my, my first impulse was like, I knew I should have become a real doctor. I could have actually helped someone. But uh, this had to do, this had to do. That's Dr. David Barkley. He's an associate professor of oceanography at Dalhousie University, and he put out a study tracking underwater noise in the Salish Sea. Um, so much like everyone else, we found ourselves stuck at home and we're thinking, what can we do? What can we do to distract ourselves? What can we do to understand what's going on? I also found myself in charge of you know, a lab full of students. And there has to be some sort of uh, leadership there uh, throughout this crisis. So uh, the idea came to me to look at these uh, underwater observatories and to sort of try and find the uh, maybe not silver lining, but tin lining on the pandemic and look at underwater noise levels. Mm -hmm. And the Salish Sea is quite far from where you are right now. I mean, you're 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 right on the edge of the Atlantic Ocean uh, and the Salish Sea is in the Pacific. What, why the Salish Sea? There's this really quite incredible infrastructure, you know, we have built, you know, we as Canadians, it's a federally funded infrastructure called the Ocean Networks Canada Ocean Observatories. They've been around for about 10 years. And the great thing about them is that they have been collecting historical data, as well as current day data and making all of that data available to any person who can find the right URL. And, and not to... Uh make things deeply unsciency, but just to put things into scale for myself and, and for listeners, yeah. you know, let's say I'm a whale. Uh, obviously, the ocean isn't going to be sort of library quiet where I can speak to anyone at normal volume uh, pre-pandemic. But, you know, are we talking about shouting across from the club loud? Are we shouting? <laughs> are, are we talking about like busy kind of office loud? What are we talking about here? Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting question because there's a very famous Jacques Cousteau, Louis Mal movie that sort of put uh, oceanography on the map um, back in, in the 50s called Le Monde du Silence, The Silent World. And it's just completely not the case. So lots of things create noise in the ocean, like natural mechanisms, like the breaking waves, you know, the white caps spilling over, making bubbles that ring out. That's like a constant background noise that goes up and down with the wind. 
and rainstorms. It's like imagine being in a in a gymnasium with a tin roof. That's sort of what it's like being in the ocean when a rainstorm hits. So it can it can be very noisy in the ocean, and um, studies have shown that certain animals adapt to those noise conditions. And you know, on top of that, then there's the noise that humans put into the ocean. And again, there have been studies that have shown that certain animals um, adapt to those human noise inputs as well. So um, it can be like being at a, a cocktail party and you have to start shouting a little bit louder. Um, people have actually recorded instances of that with whales. They see that they shout louder when there's more ships around, but it can also be very quiet. And so how does that louder noise affect marine life in the area? What's, what's, what's the potential damage? So there's you know, physical damage. And, you know, just like with humans, you can imagine if you were exposed to a very loud sound, um, you know, it could hurt your eardrums, for instance. Um, Animals certainly face the same risks, not really from persistent ship noise, but more like from things like being very close to an implosion or an explosion underwater. Mostly what we're talking about here is considering things like permanent or temporary hearing loss. We have some idea of what those thresholds are for you know, certain species of marine animals, and then sort of the physiological impact of sound. So it can cause changes in behavior, but also, you know, animals in the ocean use sound to navigate. They also use sound to look for food. And so that's sort of the big picture. And of course, the million dollar question is, well, you know, what's an acceptable level of noise to put in the ocean? And I think that's a problem that certainly still working on. Uh, Many people are. And can you put a number to just how big a drop in noise there was that was measured? We only looked at low frequencies, so 100 hertz, sort of a subwoofer type frequency. So we averaged the sound level over an entire week. Between the period of March to July, we saw a reduction of sound by nearly a half. And we saw that the quietest times became quieter than usual by nearly 10 times. So they were about a tenth as loud as they would have normally been. And uh, since you guys are called the decibel podcast, I'll say that's 10 decibels. Okay. Uh, Everyone's favorite unit, by the way. (laughs) Okay. So I reject uh, the premise of your joke earlier about how if you're not a a (laughs) medical doctor, then, you know, it's not that you're uh, doing productive work or whatever. But can you help someone who is in sort of the landlocked middle of the country understand why this research is so important to do? Uh, this is like when I defended my PhD, my mom came to the defense and she, I thought she was going to ask this question, like, how is this important? Like, why should we care? And, you know, th- so, well, I think one interesting aspect that this study sort of revealed is the importance of just having observations for observation's sake. So I sort of, you know, describe these ocean observatories sort of like, you know, we have telescope observatories that just look at the universe and try and learn things. And I don't think we really question how useful that technology is because we pretty much constantly, as the decades go by, learn incredible things about outer space and exoplanets and all sorts of stuff. And I think we're starting to see the same thing happen with these ocean observatories. And this is just one instance where it turns out there's great value in having these instruments deployed when the time is right. That's it for today. I'm Adrian Lee. This is the last episode of my two-week run, guest hosting The Decibel. I'm returning to my work as an editor for the Globe's opinion section and as the host of the Globe podcast, City Space. I really appreciate the time you spent with me here. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer. 
Angel Pacenza is our executive editor. Thanks to our guests today, Dr. Nicola Coper, Dr. William Menarek, and Dr. David Barkley. If you want to reach out to the team, send an email to thedecibel at globeandmail.com. If you want to reach me, I'm grudgingly on Twitter at Adrian Cayley. And if you haven't already, hit that follow button wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode. Thanks so much for listening, and The Decibel, with a new guest host, will be back on Monday. <laughs>